Hi, everybody. Okay. Um, thank you for coming on incredibly short notice. I'm looking forward, I'm just very much looking forward to talking about what we're going to talk about tonight. Um, Angel and I have been batting around this idea for a little while, and um, Angel's the one who really thought of, of having this um, kind of event where we just start talking about race and racism and our practices for this and how these intersect and how we start to understand being able to have these conversations. And um, I think there's a lot to explore and there's a lot to understand with each other. But as I look around, you know, it's um, clear that it's important to us. So I'm glad that we're doing it. I think it's okay with you Angel, mm -hmm. you, for you to kind of speak your piece about the evening, and um, and we'll go from there. I can follow you on that. Is that okay? Sure. Okay. But do I? I don't think I'm saying. It. Am I? You Probably not mic'd there. You have to hit that little button. <coughs> You're on. Yeah. Um, uh, welcome. Mm. It's wonderful to see so many people come out. And, um, I feel like the, your being here is a testament to um, my, just my sense, nothing, nothing surprising, that this conversation uh, and many conversations are needed. Greg and I have had, um, he's one of, I would say, uh, two, in, in particular, two teachers that I've had conversations with over the last uh, two years. Lama Rod Owens is the other one um, that are, you know, positioned uh, in, in teaching roles in uh, Buddhist communities and troubled by the uh, how uh, rampant racism is in in Dharma communities and how inconsistent that is with the teachings. Um, so at various levels, we we are uh, deeply challenged by what it means um, for us most immediately as practitioners ourselves, but also for what that means about the unfolding, the continued unfolding of the Dharma in. Uh, in the states, in, in the West at large, but particularly in the states, you know, our brand of of uh, racism is very special. It's a special brand that's been um, developed just for us um, and actually exported many places. And so I was uh, thinking, um, particularly in the rise of the events post Ferguson, that. Uh, how interesting it is <coughs> the way that things are unfolding and that it feels to me like we are, we, we are, were, still remains to be seen, headed for something similar as uh, what the way that I understand the civil rights movement, which is we will eventually probably end up with some kind of 
piece of legislation or something that is meant to satisfy people's frustrations and yet the legacy of racism will continue to live on. It'll have a different permutation, it will take on some different colors, pun intended, um, but it will live on um, because no amount of legislation is going to change hearts and minds and we're at a place in which we have not, we still have not yet had, uh, not, not solely individually, but as a community, we haven't held the sense of having had a conversation with each other on all different levels, uh, heart to heart, mind to mind, with all of the messiness that that entails, with all of the challenges, and so it results in this sort of awkward, Base in which people um, exist somewhere between frustration, guilt, shame, anger, um, and some of the more, um, I think, I would say, you know, life-threatening ones of um, actual, you know, real aggression and violence living in our bodies and. Um, utter denial living in the bodies of some of the rest of us. And so all, all of it is just kind of a mess <laughs> and not useful. And <coughs> not um, simple to solve, but really a straightforward step is that we begin. And so this, this is the, the beginning of trying to begin something of a conversation within Dharma communities uh, so that the places in which many of our Sangha um, leaders and teachers and members are hiding can be, um, you know, exposed, that we can just kind of bring our, all of ourselves out of the corners and come into the center of the room. I feel pretty strongly that this has to be the conversation of the next unfolding of the Dharma or else our um, place in the uh, larger philosophical, social, religious, spiritual um, location in, 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 in America will be irrelevant. We'll, we'll be exposed uh, for being the, one of the traditions and practices and philosophies and all the ways that people think of it as one of the most available, technically speaking, not only to having these conversations, but actually the tools and resources to work through the conversations and the hindrances to the, those um, the hindrances to getting free of, 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 of racism. We have it like all in there. It's like all here. Uh, and so if we, if it's clear to everybody that we have the tools and we're refusing to use, to use them, the, um, I think that the fascination that people have with mindfulness and Buddhism will quickly wither. And um, something that is very, very hopeful Will, will be lost.
agenda here. Yeah. And um, everything that Angel said resonates with me completely. And the one thing, and this is a little biographical um, for me, but it, it's going to speak to um, to what is missing for me in Dharma communities. And that is, my background before starting practice was was actually philosophically and being trained around um, identity, critical race theory, postmodern subjectivity, that kind of stuff. And in that world, what was there was a, um, a sense of taking responsibility for one's social identity. And then I started Dharma practice and dropped that away because I was crazy and I just needed to be sane a little more before I could uh, even think about that. But what struck me is that all settled <coughs> looking at Dharma communities is that we've accepted, and people have heard me say this, we've accepted a kind of psychodynamic model in the United States of looking at the self and unpacking the self. And our model for interconnectedness is often an ecological one. You know, so we talk about the environment and the way we're interconnected and all of these things. But what always struck me was that there was no discussion about social identity. There was no discussion in Dharma communities that I could see around race, around serious conversations around gender, um, homophobia, patriarchy. These words just, patriarchy doesn't come up. You know? um, and no one uses the word. And it's... Well, it comes up, but nobody uses the word. Yeah, it comes up. <laughs> yeah, it's coming up all the time. Um, and and what, what is striking, and I think something for us to consider, is however unconscious this may be, it is a willful decision to exclude that aspect of looking at the self. That is a willful decision. It may be very unconscious. And the other interesting thing about that area being left out is that I think part of the reason it's left out is because that's when we start talking about power. We can talk about our psychodynamic histories and stay away from power. We can talk about environmental and ecological models without bringing in um, without bringing in the economics behind it. And we can stay away from power, but when we move into these kinds of discussions, we get into having to talk about historic power and power relationships. And that's scary. And that has the capacity to, um, for us to feel extraordinarily vulnerable, vulnerable for emotions to come up and for systems to be challenged. And um, I could not agree more that unless, what Angel was saying, unless Buddhism brings to bear all of the spiritual technologies that is its history on this, we're not relevant. We're not really, I don't think we're doing much that matters. You know, I don't buy into myself personally, I do not buy into the frame that if I wake up on a cushion all by myself and do nothing else, that that somehow liberates everyone else. That is a, that is a very um, nice position from privilege. And it is a position of privilege to be able to say, if I wake up, everybody's liberated, and to interpret it as everybody, without actually ever talking to everybody. 
And, um, and I think if we are going to take our Bodhisattva vows seriously, um, for those of us who are in the, those traditions, but any tradition, it doesn't matter, um, we have to get very clear about what it is to practice and have conversations that is truly for the liberation of all of us, because it is 100% intertwined. If we're going to talk, we were just talking, uh, who was I just talking with about this? Casey. Um, supremacy is, is killing us all. You know, it is the, the idea that there is a group of people that are somehow superior to another group of people, whether it be men to women or white to black, it's killing us all. It's oppressing particular group and not the other. But it's destroying the humanity of everybody involved. And, um, and that, that has to be, we have the capacity to, um, to illuminate that. The tools are here to illuminate that. And so I can't imagine a better place to actually have that happen than Buddhist communities, than Dharma communities. And yet it's not. And if we're not at the front of that, when I hear these conversations about implicit bias, we're the ones who's we're the ones who look at our minds. Why are we not at the front of the conversation around implicit bias? Why aren't Buddhists right there having this conversation? And we're not. So there's um, because we're not doing the work. We're just not doing that work. That's not where we're looking. And um, I just think that has to shift, and soon, very soon. So our um, intention is to uh, just really open up a conversation. It's we happen to be sitting here, um, but. Uh, you know, there's just been many conversations where we would say, it would be so great if other people heard this and had an opportunity to chime in. And so, um, I think the, the way we thought about beginning this is to just surface some of the concepts or themes that have arisen in our conversations. Mm -hmm. and. You know, we don't, we don't have a structured idea of how it should happen, but just to sort of popcorn out like, oh yeah, this comes across, and, and, then, um, and then see what happens, and, and let everyone chime in to not so much a... Well, I think there's some, some degree of question and answer just from the, from the position of, we, we are holding unique positions, and I, and I want to give people an opportunity to um, to sort of probe that, right? Actually, it even challenge to some degree uh, where we sit in, in terms of roles within Buddhist communities. Because, you know, as a as a practitioner before I had a you know title, I, I just couldn't help but be like, well, what are you doing about it? And I wanted to be able to ask that, right? And the structure somehow didn't allow for it. There's all this self silencing that's part of the Buddhist community. And so if we could kind of like lift the veil on that for a little bit, let's put that aside, um, because I think it's important and I think it's really unhealthy that we spend the, great, the greater part of our lives as practitioners with all of these questions running around 
in the back of our heads. Now, I, I'm sure you have many, many of them, but we're going to limit these to largely race and oppression. Um, uh, and, and just sort of lift the veil on that so that it's a conversation space in, in that way. Um, because I think it's important for us to feel empowered and feel like whole people in, in relationship to our practice and that it doesn't require us to leave a great deal of ourselves at the door, that we sort of get to the door and we figure out what part of myself do I have to check in order to be here and to be um, considered like part of the, part of the community. Um, so what, however you interpret that and whatever that means, um, I think that's, that's the idea. So that's good. So you want to start with that? Should we say some things? Just throw some things out there? Yeah, sure. Um, so I think this, I think that this question of um, the way in which all of our humanity is is uh, undermined. Mm-hmm. Is, a, is a really compelling um, inquiry and conversation for me because I am personally tired of the dichotomy that keeps in place that there's something that white folks have to do for people of color or something that men have to do for women or something that straight people have to do like on behalf of and for queer folks. Um, and I, I find it difficult. I love altruism and the idea, but ultimately I think that people are pretty self-motivated and that, we, and that when, we, when people start to recognize like, oh, I have like some skin in the game here, and my own salvation, like literally my own experience of my own you know, rendering of my own life is, um, is part of what's happening here. I'm, I'm losing something by this continuing. That, I feel like my, the conversations that we have had and we were on sharing about that mm-hmm. um, has been eye-opening. It's one of those things like, oh, I, I suspected that was true, but I needed a, like a, white, a straight white man to confirm it. Because <laughs> 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 I never get to be one. Yeah. <laughs> so that's one of the things that really... Um, the relationship of you know capitalism to this is also uh, how it's so you know mixed mixed into all of this, and um, it's 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 really the, one of the most significantly unspoken parts of Buddhist communities. How much capitalism mm-hmm. figures into the the structures and what gets kept in place, mm-hmm. what we talk about, what we don't talk about. There's so much about. I mean, it's you know like survival, but it's really Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was just going to add something into that. Well, yeah, the question please, that yeah. came up for me was about um, <clears throat> about hierarchy. So there's a way that the the way that the forms have been transmitted, you know, mm-hmm. from my teachers. There's a hierarchy there, you know. And to me, you know, the question that arose for me is like, how do you detoxify a hierarchy? You know, mm-hmm. because in hierarchy. There is power, and there is, you know, um, it can feel like submission, you know. And I was thinking about, you know, going into practice discussion and facing, you know, this 
as a woman facing this man, and it, it kind of evokes things, you know, that um, are, um, that connect me to all sorts of other situations, you know, and I imagine that's the same um, for others. And so, you know, I, I guess one of, one of my, my inquiries is just, you know, how, how do we create a space in which this conversation can happen and people feel like they can enter in, and I appreciate you saying, like, even sitting up there, like, how do you, how do you, how do you tear that open a little bit so so we can all join in? So that's just an ongoing question for me because um, I also appreciate the idea of surrender, but not submission, mm -hmm. you know. Um, and it, I think it gets confused in my own body and mind, and mm -hmm. and um, and I imagine that that may be the case for others. So. Mm. Yeah, any other yeah, people want to surface? And then we'll just see where it goes. Um, so one thing that's confusing for me is um, knowing like, what shape racism takes. Mm -hmm. um, we talk about it, especially lately, as if it does exist and it's obvious it exists. But hearing you talk about it in your opening comments, I really resonated with like the emotional side of it, which is like, I feel it like in me, like something, and I don't know what the emotion is, and it doesn't feel good, and I don't know what to do about it. Um, but is it like totally abstract, or can we talk about like concrete examples of racism, and then talk about, you know, you're saying how racism, um, it hurts obviously the oppressed, but it also hurts the oppressor. I think it would be helpful to like have a tangible example of that in our society. That's a great starting point. You want to go on that? You go. <laughs> um, okay, so this is a great question, especially from a practice side. So when we use the word racism, right, it feels out there. So I think from a practice perspective, especially if you're on the white side, um, if we want to talk that way for a moment, um, is to look at feelings like to actually make this a practice inquiry. So, and I'll go to, to a, a way that I think is an example of it actually hurting the oppressor. Um, but um, to look at whiteness in oneself. So when we as Buddhists talk about, look at greed, okay? We look into the mind, we feel the way greed causes us to tighten up. We feel we have a process for looking at greed, hate, and delusion, okay? You, we can also look and see the way we hook into any identity. So actually allowing this to be a lens for the way we look. Okay, so how is the mind actually grasping onto an idea of whiteness? And it might be very, or to supremacy. You know, there's a little way that maybe I'm a little, the way where I come from is a little bit above where other people are coming from. And I was trained that. I was trained that way, to think that way, and kind of look at other people through a particular lens, and actually look in the mind and see what's happening, and know what's going on. Now, where it's extraordinarily damaging to the self is that you have to maintain that little bit above. You have to hold yourself there in a very neurotic way, you know, and you have to stay slightly inflated. And so that's not possible, because what we all deeply long for is just our basic humanity. We don't want to be below a line or above a line. We want to be human beings, okay? 
So to actually attend to that and notice it. Now where it has extraordinarily damaging effects is, do you know who the, is everybody familiar with the statistic of who commits the most suicides in the United States? It's 70, about 75 to 78% of suicides are white men between 35 and 45. The statistics are astronomical. And I come from a family where that's the case, where several white men have tried to commit suicide. And um, it hits an age where, that, where you kind of meet your maker around that supremacy thing. If you can't hold yourself to a certain point, you collapse into shame. And when you collapse into shame, and 35 is when we start kind of looking at our life, we kill ourselves. So this has, you know, this has profoundly damaging effects on all of us. Yeah, yeah I, I think what's curious, or here's what I imagine, at least, so I come from this from this perspective of this emotion, like I wouldn't even be looking, this wasn't like I was a race woman or something, I didn't come into it like that. It, it was like, the, it was the practice that actually gave me the lens into it because I was so, um, I took it so seriously that one had to inquire into all of what arose. And so all forms of contraction and discomfort and dis-ease were like, oh, where's that coming from? And oh, where's that coming from? And, and so I spent a few years of like, you know, don't say anything because every time I said something, it would distract me from the feeling. And that's actually where I began to probe my own sense of superiority around, particularly around my um, so the, my my enormous capacity for language, the my skin color and my hair texture. Where's that all leading? And then I had to follow that, right? Sort of like one by one. It was like, oh, I started to notice how I thought, you know, slightly better of myself, actually lots better of myself, because uh, because I had been told so often how articulate I was. And that then made me better off in circumstances. And then I developed a sense of like, well, if they would just get their this together. And there was a they on the other side of that. Mm -hmm. By this time I was 22 or something and I had to stop and probe the like, who's the they? And how come they f are starting to like look alike? <laughs> right? the, the they would like fit a certain mold, right? So, you know, young black men that were doing particularly, um, you know, in involved in like, you know, some form of aggression. Like, I, I took on all of the stories about like what they needed to do and how they needed to get it together. But, and, and that's kind of easy. But then it was like my roommate who was, <laughs> you know, a, a brown man. And like, well, if he would just this and he would just that. and. As I began to follow it, I realized that I had taken on all of these ways, very subtly, no one ever said anything about race, but it was all the ways in which it made me much more appealing to white folks that I was aligning with. And it was very subtle. And so I think what I wanted to probe with you is the sense of like, not even understanding it as whiteness, mm -hmm. 
right? So it's like pre that, like before you even get to understand it, is like, oh, I'm, I'm having like a white thought, <laughs> right? But like noticing the impulse to be better and to think you're better and to jump in and to take the space, and, right? To notice that impulse first and then threading them together and figuring out what, what is that, what is, the, what is that constructed of, right? It's like there are all these little threads that if we start <coughs> looking at them and we distance ourselves from them enough as like, that's who I am, we begin to recognize that they actually have a social, there's a social construct and content to them that is both us and also greater than us. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Now, can I comment on that? Because Please. one of the reasons that this is important to me is because ultimately it's really liberating. Yeah. Um, it's not just about, and I'll just speak from my, uh, this is a different frame, but to flip over to patriarchy, I remember that there was, you know, there was a very clear moment where I realized all of this brutalization and not, about not having emotions and about having a very narrow frame of emotionality and ways that I viewed myself and a self-loathing around anything that was soft. Um, there was a click that happened at one point where it was like, oh shit, this is what we're all being told. This is what men are being peddled nonstop. And when that happened, it depersonalized the process. It wasn't like, oh, you know, I just can't figure it. And that depersonalization, it wasn't a giving up of responsibility, totally responsible, but it allowed space to actually start working with something that, um, that wasn't so narrow and small and isolated. And there's a community there. And that process is liberating. And I feel the same thing about working with race. It's like, it's actually a liberating process to do exactly what Angel said, to look at, you know, superiority, perfectionism, all of the things that we have, and then to realize that it's actually tied into a training, a way we're trained. And, and that that can ultimately be liberating, and it makes the connection, direct connection between personal liberation and the liberation of all of us. It becomes very clear at that moment. So, that was a thought. I did come into this as a race man. <laughs> so my eyes were wide open. Is it possible to do this work without the historical context? Because your question is great, like, what is it? Why do I feel this way? Why are they doing this? Why, like, these whys come up, and then it, it, the answer is really not in your head. I mean, they're clear-cut reasons why all this is happening. So is it possible, like, do you have to do everybody have to go back and do their own work? Is it like real almost academic like work to be done before this is finished? Or even approached? You wanna go? I'm curious what you have to say about that. Okay. <laughs> um, I don't know if it's I don't know if it's necessary. I think it's helpful. 
you know, and I think it's helpful because it gives a starting point. Because I think what's really difficult, especially I think what's difficult for white folks is that, um, is this feeling of being accused or like somehow they've always been this way or, you know, whatever. And, um, and that there's some inherent evil once you take this on, you know, it goes to all those uh, really useless places of thinking. And, um, and when you know there's a historical moment at least this particular racism of America, there's a historical moment when this was consciously constructed for reasons of power and control. It's really helpful to know that that's not the case because we've all been duped. <laughs> it isn't like, you know, we've, we've all been, there was a reason this happened. So I think it's helpful to, um, to give, actually give people the space and the, um, the word that comes up is go ahead, but the, the, the right or the permission, the permission to go ahead with this and actually heal something that was purposefully damaged, that was purposefully damaged so that there could be economic power and control in this country for a very small group of people. And this is where there's just no way to pull capitalism out of it. <laughs> you, know, you, know, there's, you know, that happened and so now we can heal. But yeah, I think it's hard without the, I think it's hard without knowing that. At least a little bit, at least that moment. It's hard to not know that moment. Yeah, yeah I would agree. I mean, I, I think it's possible, but, but why bother? <laughs> the, the history is available to us. You know, human beings are contextual. And so having some kind of a context, some kind of a framework in which to see oneself in relationship to has been um, in my experience of going and actually, um, I just I just came uh, last weekend from sitting with a, a white awareness group, that is a group in part that's within the larger um, Insight Meditation Center of Washington, which is a big sprawling um, body of you know sanghas connected to each other, and I can always feel the relief in the room, you know, except for the people that completely contract <laughs> something I hear the you know silent scream when I when I say like this was constructed and I can place it and, and it's like oh so I think that there's some really important way in which people can let go of fighting for who they fundamentally are. Right, like having to defend who they fundamentally are. Ra rather, it gives them an understanding like, no, you, you were trained this way. It was set up, and you, you know, as Spike would say, like, you, you were bamboozled. <laughs> and then people, I think two things are important. Both they get to say, oh, okay, so it makes sense that I couldn't see it. Right? It was designed so that I couldn't see it. It makes sense that I am, you know, that this is all happening and that I've been particip participating unbeknownst to me. But I think really critical is that it's also a decision point for people to decide, and I don't want to play a part in it anymore. Mm -hmm. And I think without the historical context, right, where people can really draw a line and say, oh, now that I know this, it's very difficult, right, to continue on without having to make some kind of decision about whether I'm, it's sort of like when you're sitting on the cushion, 
and you notice you're distracted, <clears throat> there's a decision point. It's a choice point. You either continue going along, you know, preparing tomorrow's work plan, <laughs> or you come back to the point, right? You come back to your cushion. You come back to this moment. And it continuously unfolds, right? And it gets, at some point, we wear ourselves out where we're in the, we're in such awareness, even if we go with the distraction, right, or we go with the whiteness, or we go with the participation in, in racism, we feel, a, we're conscious of it, we become conscious of it in a way that is very difficult to abide in. And so exposing it in that way, uh, I think sets people up for really having to make a choice. Just one, one real quick thing on this, and then um, I think there's two distinctions that are really helpful. One is really understanding the difference between fault and responsibility. None of this is our fault, it is totally our responsibility. Okay? That's one thing. The other thing, the difference between a private and a personal mind, you know, our thoughts are not personal. Not one of them. They are all inherited. Every single one. So they are private. But to not confuse a private mind with a personal mind. Personal mind is delusional. It's not personal. So if we can give up that idea that the thoughts that go through our head are somehow our fault and personal, and understand that they are private and that they are conditioned, then this becomes a lot easier to talk about because we're not taking all this stuff personally. So that's a really important practice move that's necessary to actually be able to do this. I love that you said inherited. Yeah. Right? Like that's because you can inherit things and you can decide, like, I don't want this. <laughs> like, it's great. Like, I got this and, you know, here, you know, Aunt Susan gave me these things. And those, like, moldy socks, not so much. Yeah. Maybe when she was alive, I would have taken them because I was being polite. But I get to choose. And I think that that's... When Greg first said that to me, it was sort of like, oh, right, right? It's like, we are trained to think of our thoughts as personal. I could, I could actually feel the room have a little like, when he said that. It's like, oh. but, they're, but they're mine, but they're mine. And, and that's not true. They're all inherited. And that's devastating as well as liberating. Um, my name is Sinova. Um, I, there's so many, I really appreciate that you created this forum and I want to first say that I feel like I'm not very articulate compared with you. I've always felt that I have difficulties, so bear with me. Um, I just wanted to throw out, it's maybe, there's so many different aspects to this conversation and I wanted to just bring up my concern because I feel like I've been thinking a lot about this and I don't get anywhere, you know, but I practiced with the Rock Blossom Sangha, you came there once for a conversation, and the issue is that it used to be pretty, our, our community, it's based on Thich Nhat Hanh's teaching, used to be pretty um, diverse, 
but not so anymore. And I don't quite know some reasons I understand, others I don't. So my concern is I would like to find out actually the nitty-gritty of what might be going on under the surface that created this issue. We actually formed, uh, Justin formed a little committee f uh, uh, to explore this further. We're just beginning with that. But um, I, I just want to mention that I come from a, I grew up in Germany and my, I've, the whole issue of racism has always been very close to me, but from a different point of view, because I grew up after the war in Germany with the legacy of the Holocaust. I'm German, I have married a, a Jewish American who was, whose parents were survivors of the Holocaust. So this has always been, as a German and married to a Jew, this has always been a big issue for me, and it's racism, but a different form of racism. But I feel like I was kind of indoctrinated suddenly after the war in, in a kind of slightly anti-Semitic way, you know, very subtle, but I remember somehow might be something a little different about Jews, you know. My grandmother was a little anti-Semitic, and when she found out I'm involved with this Jewish guy who I met in Germany, she said, well, I guess one Jew in the family is not too bad. <laughs> she thought there was something wrong with the blood mixing. She, was, she had Jewish friends in the past, you know, and, but it was more like a philosophical thing. There's something wrong with the blood mixing. <laughs> but anyway, that's my background. And um, this whole issue of responsibility, you know, we brought up in, in high school, we had discussions about are we, is there collective guilt or not? Mm -hmm. and, we came to the conclusion, no, there isn't, but there's a sense of responsibility being German. I was born after the war. Mm -hmm. So I, I feel like I can't be blamed for what happened before I was born, you know, but it's off, off, obviously a big issue. So now I get into the situation in the Sangha where I became friendly with some people of color and they dropped out for different reasons and I'm continuing to explore this. I'm going to go to the, their Sangha and try to find out more. But I'm concerned about not so much of philosophical aspects of it, and, but more about the nitty-gritty, because I really don't know what went on there and in what way the subtle racism operates. You know, I've never heard from anybody in the many years I've lived here, I can't be as an adult, um, that there was a, a kind of getting, uh, you know, any kind of idea that I would I did anything racist or I treated somebody differently or something. I never heard any feedback or even suddenly felt that. And so I'm just really at a loss. I I'm totally aware of the rampant racism in this country. I mean it's just, I have, I think I'm absolutely not naive about it. But I just don't know what happened in our Sangha. <laughs> so I'm concerned about the real nitty-gritty, and I really think I know how difficult it is to talk about even the people I was friendly with. I started approaching this people of color that I, I was friendly with, and I still somewhat am. And I want it's so difficult for, for a black person and a white person to talk about racism with each other. It's just so difficult, you know, and I, I feel like I don't come from that legacy, so it's a little bit easier for me, mm -hmm. but I mean, just for my feelings, not maybe not in real life, but that's how I feel. But um, I just don't know what went on there, you know, so that's, that's really why I am here. Quarter after.
I'm sorry if I took up too much time. Mm -hmm. I, I think, so I, th I want to say first, I think that the, the response should come from people in the room. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I want to frame it that I, because I think this is rarely said, it is a combination, someone once said this, they said racism is rarely everything and it's always something of, of situations, like it's always operating, but it's also, and it's rarely everything that's happening. So I think that's for sure um, a, a reasonable, what, a, a reasonable um, uh, quantity of what is happening, percentage of what is happening, is actually, and I just want to own this, like pe people of color's projection onto the situation because we're so fed up. And so there are things that we could be seeing that are just ordinary, like funky people things <laughs> that we're just like, oh, like maybe you just, I'm not saying you in this moment, like maybe someone just talks too much. <laughs> they just talk a lot. And then we're just like, oh, there go white folks talking, taking up all the damn space again. Mm -hmm. So it, that, that actually is functioning in there. So I just want to own that like straight up that it happens and that's part of it. Um, and it makes sense that that's part of it, right? It's like, it's, it's hard for women to walk into a space in which they're attenuated to uh, male dominance and to like not be on the hunt for, you know, when is the guy going to do the thing? And if he puts his thumb up, it's like, oh, there goes the phallic symbol. You know? <laughs> 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 right? And so let's just say, like, that's in the mix. And, like, we have to have some kind of like humor and ownership of like, it's really messy now. So it's not absolute. That said, I think folks should just offer little snippets of the kind of, mm -hmm. it's come to be called microaggressions, which I never feel like they're very microaggressions. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, just a, a few sentences, just so that we can get get around here. I'll offer something. I, I just, I wasn't part of the Bach Blossom Sangha, but I just recently left a, a Zen Sangha in Brooklyn because, because of various multiple microaggressions. And the reason that a lot of us, well the reason that I didn't bring it up is because when you do bring it up, you bring it up to the to the sensei, to the head sensei, we bring it up to even people of color, they will invalidate us. Especially because a lot of the people of color in, in Buddhist sanghas are middle class and very assimilated mm -hmm. and have access to a lot of resources. So they can again the class plays out because they, they can distance themselves. You know, they play respectability politics, they play the model minority. And I have to go through those gatekeepers. And when I told them about the microaggressions that happened to me, oh, maybe you're hallucinating. Are you sure you perceive it that way? Oh, maybe, you know, maybe you should have, you know, it's just complete invalidation. And this is with, and this is with people of color, let alone, if, if I bring this up to, to the, the white Sangha members, are you kidding me? It's just like, there's a point where I was like, okay, I brought it up, I brought it up to other people, I'm getting ignored, I'm out. You know, and this keeps happening. This is Tibetan sanghas, secular sanghas, Zen sanghas. I'm like, this is for like 10 years already. I'm like hopping around every other place because I can't, I mean, part of it's also my lack of patience, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I want I would like 
a middle way. You know, I would like I'll give some people to meet me halfway, the leaders of these, because I know it's, it, nothing's perfect, there's no utopia, but if the leaders are not meeting me halfway, it's like I, I can't get my voice addressed. And that's the reason why a lot of us silence ourselves, and also spiritual bypassing. Oh, why are you so stuck on the identity? Why don't you just detach? Oh, why don't you know it's just mold into like this kind of miasmic shunyata, Buddha nature, whatever. And it's just like complete downplaying of our conventional identities, our relative identities, and it is coming from privilege. Also, one more thing, I think you brought in capitalism. And a lot of a lot of teachers, I think, are scared because when they bring it up, they're 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 you know they're, they're but a lot of people are just going to leave. A lot of people that are paying for the rent are going to leave, and especially in Manhattan and New York City, where that's like, you know, core. So it's like, how are you going to talk about it? If you talk about it, everyone leaves, and then you can't pay the rent, and the sangha disappears. Mm -hmm. Give us an example. <laughs> an example? Just, yeah, just mm. a my what a a nitty gritty. That's what she asked for. Like. A, Expression, example of like what happens because I think most mostly like um, if you're not in, on the inside of it and, and, and you're not conscious of even how to you know unpack it I think many white folks don't actually know what kind of things happen. Mm -hmm. Okay, I'll, I'll name a microaggression that happened Just to you. Just one. Uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, a person came up to me after uh, a diversity meeting you know, diversity class in Buddhism for, for, you know, it was a four hour meeting. And then, you know, even the teacher says, you know, don't invalidate people, don't invalidate people. And then like 15 minutes after the meeting was over, you know, this person comes up to me. Oh, you're from the Philippines. Oh, I've been there. I did a lot of great work there. I'm, a, I'm, I'm an anthropologist. I did a lot of stuff, da, 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 da. You know, she went off on this thing. And I was like, yeah, yeah, I did, I did. And I just, I mentioned a few things about my, you know, how I'm dealing with a lot of internalized oppression because of the Catholicism of Christianity, and she just immediately stopped. It's like, oh, they do a lot of great things, you know, you mm -hmm. talk about this, then there's all, they do so many humanitarian things. And she didn't listen to one word about it, you know, how much all, all of the crap that I have to deal with from, you know, from like 400 years of colonialism, that's like completely out the window. And she's an anthropologist, you know, it's just like, and I, yeah, that's one example. Someone else? Casey. Um, I'll even offer one that happened tonight. Um, I'm going to invite you to um, just everyone to project into the room. And, and, and in case you did not notice, just notice that this is being recorded. And so if you uh, prefer not to, for what you say to be recorded, don't say it here. <laughs> or at least not now. At least not now. Say it here. Yeah, don't say it. Yeah, don't see it. <laughs> yes. You say it here, but yes, here, here in this space, but not now. Yes. All right. I'll try to project. Um, so tonight, um, I was sitting with Farhana, and we were talking while folks were meditating in the space, and someone came up to us and was like, um, "Well, they said it like in a polite way, but they're like, oh, can you keep it down?'" essentially, when we weren't really speaking loudly. And then a couple of minutes later, um, some other folks went to sit at the tables and they started talking like in their normal voice and like, not loud, but like, you know, louder than we were speaking. And the person didn't say anything to them. Mm -hmm. And Farhan and I like, looked at each other and we were like, 
that's that shit. <laughs> that's what usually happens. Yeah, and so I'm just going to say that we're not talking about whether the things are about the intention on the other person's side. So I just want to say, in sharing these things, it's like these are these are experiences that people have that, given the context and the backdrop of racism, can be experienced as certainly potential, if not definitely, acts of uh, microaggression and racism. So we're, we're not making a comment on, as to what that person's intention was and whether she was racist or not, but rather uh, a little snippet of people's experiences. And, and you can kind of extrapolate and then begin to understand, like, oh, yeah, I can kind of see how that might make sense. And if you don't understand, you should ask. And I, I want to encourage also, uh, you know, the white folks also say things that you've noticed, because I think that that's really helpful, too, that it doesn't always have to come from folks of color. Mm -hmm. yeah. well, I was the one that did that. Um, I, was, um, I was aware of these issues as, as the whole thing played out, both of the things, sir, the whole, the whole, whole thing. Uh, you know, the, the uh, discomfort of well, being a white man talking to black women and saying anything off. Um, uh, as, I don't know. I was, as when the uh, men were talking, it sounded to me they were at the same volume you were. I was one asking myself if I should uh, say the same thing to them. Um, yeah, it was, it was a touchy thing, I said, I said like, uh, I said, uh, as you're talking, I suggest you uh, speak softly as the other people are meditating. My perception is um, that you were not loud, but you were louder than people usually speak when they're out there. People are louder than people have spoken, or I've spoken when we're out there. And uh, as the room, as people, as time went on, I noticed uh, you spoke softlier. But I was, yeah, I was where I was, I would be eight. Like is it, I was thinking in my mind, is this going to be not just an interaction, but a uh, white versus black issue? Um, I guess, I don't know what to say about it. It's touching us. I guess we disagree on uh, what was happening. But I think what's interesting to note in that is that the subtlety of like that interaction, like the subtlety of how like supremacy works, is that like you saw us and immediately said something, but then you didn't say anything to like the white folks who were sitting at the table and were like thought about it and had to think about it, but like immediately when you saw us like speaking, like you didn't you didn't even hesitate. And like that's like the thing that like why I'm here tonight is because I really want to like get into like the subtleties of how this stuff plays out and like get people to like talk about it because like we don't extrapolate it at all like we don't talk about it at all it's just this thing that like kind of like happens in the ether but like we need to like bring it up we need to bring it to consciousness because otherwise like these dynamics will continue and like no like progress in terms of like liberation will occur I dispute that it was immediate. Uh, I, uh, when I heard you two speaking, I, I thought about it 
for a while. Is it is it a is it even a problem? And should I say anything? I was not just unconscious and casual about not speaking about it as I spoke to you. And I also think that when like a person of color like gives their experience, it's really important to listen and just take a step back and just like listen, but rather than like be like, okay, I need to like speak, I need to like make this better. Rather than just like take a, sit, a step back and just like listen and like maybe think about how that might have come across rather than like being quick to defensiveness. I would say I have been listening. I'd like to share you something. Um, I'm not really a Buddhist, so. So as a white person, I'd like to share some microaggressions that I was the author of. Um, I think it's a very touchy issue for white people to acknowledge um, <coughs> how we are aggressive to others. Um, so for example, I remember one time um, walking into a place with a friend. My friend was a black man. And um, so we were coming in and he was holding the door. And this older black woman was coming towards us. And I started walking in, you know. And I was um, basically pushing her out of, out of the way to walk in first. And my friend took my, took my hand and held me back and he said, she's an older woman. You know, you don't do that. But then I realized, if she was white, I would probably have, you know, not, you know, came in. Mm. And then another thing I noticed is that after that, I was like, oh, it is disrespectful to do that, you know? And so I started letting people in. And sometimes I noticed they were surprised, you know, which they shouldn't be, but Unfortunately, you know, I think that growing up, um, I grew up outside of the U.S. and we didn't really, um, the race concept wasn't as outwards, but um, it was very present. It was just not as spoken about, you know. Um, and when I came here, I became a lot more aware of how things work. I also remember one time, which I'll be ashamed for life. Um, my friend was showing me a picture of his kid. She's very cute and he's from <coughs> Denmark and his wife is from Hong Kong. And I was like, oh, she's very cute. And she was like, um, he was like, yeah, she's beautiful. She looks very Asian. And I, was like, yeah. and I was like, oh yes, but she's still beautiful. And then I was like, wait, did I really just say that? You know? And. It's not a conscious thing, you know, because I never thought in my mind Asian people are not beautiful. You know, I thought many Asian people were beautiful. But then I realized it came out of me because I was programmed this way. You know, I was, it was just like, there was somewhere inside me where consciously beauty was more white, you know? And realizing these things, I also felt like the shame um, was very destructive for me. So I think it's important for, for, you know, for, and I'm sure everyone is the author of microaggressions because there's always someone we can oppress. 
So I think it's great to realize, you know, what we do. I actually kind of want to unpack this thing about aggression a little bit more. I think um, I was part of the Women's March, um, I forget the date, um, and, and I was also prior to that part of the, um, the climate change march. And I think the tone was very different in comparison to marches. I think there is the climate change there is for whatever reason sense of hope and optimism mm. for the sort of us as humanity coming together to um, unite around this issue that we all are concerned about. And whereas the Ferguson March Thing specifically, it was branded as Day of Anger. Mm -hmm. And the experience of that march is unifying, but it's unifying in a tone that was very <coughs> specifically towards NYPD. And so, right, the, towards, towards, it was, I mean, the chance involved like calling NYPD racist. But the, the tone, I'm just talking about my experience of the, of the tone of that day. Was, was aggressive towards um, the police. So what do you do with that, right? It's like, it's like, in many ways, that experience of oppression and the anger that arise out of oppression, um, the experience that is aggressive, and I think to, to, to have room to express that aggression like there, there has to be a way to move through that. Um, that is that is constructive and skillful. That, and at the same time, it's like how do you not let that aggression perpetuate into further aggression, where it just becomes this, you know, tit for that. It's like no, you should. No, you should. No, you should. I thought I was. No, you weren't. So it's like you get into this like. Thing that happens when you put two people in, in rooms of conflict with their own perspectives, and you get into you get into conflict. That's the nature of conflict, is that you know, there's this sort of like holding the other person accountable, trying to point at something they're doing wrong, and, and the other person is saying, like, I wasn't doing that, and I thought I was doing that. That's it, that's just that's just what how how it plays out, you know. Um, so I guess my question is like, and I've seen this, I've been to these a few times, where it's very difficult to create spaciousness around, around, around it. You know, folks who are oppressed feel mis not understood and not, um, you know, like they, they've been carrying this baggage and they, they need to air it out. It needs, it needs room. And then, and then the people who feel like they identify with some kind of oppressive, uh, identity feels uncomfortable and awkward and don't feel like I don't know how to talk about it. Is it even okay to talk about it? Will I be blamed for even like entering to a space where I admit my ignorance, right? It's like, oh, I didn't realize I was aware of this and now I'm being blamed for my ignorance. So it's like, how do you hold those things in a way where people, where, where it's okay to actually have that tension be what it is, recognize it, and really create space 
and 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 skillfulness around those types of interactions. I um, this is the reason that we wanted to you know start these conversations because I think way before people need to be understood, they need to be heard. Mm -hmm. And um, I like to say that space is love. Mm -hmm. And that to create space around something where it doesn't have to be fixed, it doesn't have to be you know, put into a historical context, it doesn't have to, nothing has to be done to it or with it, but it has to be heard. And um, the country at large, and it seems um, Buddhist communities are doing really well, specifically, and not being willing to hear. Mm -hmm. Just not being willing to hear what people have to say. Mm -hmm. uh, we have such a significant fear, right, of that kind of, um, you know, what you call this sort of like, you know, mobilizing or, or, or organizing ourselves around anger. And so there's a there's a social construct that's actually part of like white politeness construct to push that back and and immediately like you're bad or wrong for even having that so all of our language even around the way that people culturally conflict differently immediately makes many people of colors ways just their ways right bad and and, and wrong and that's true for other white-skinned people as well, like Italians have learned to like you know contain themselves. And I don't know, many people as a joke that like Italians like the black white people, right? Or like the Filipinos are the like black Asian people. Like, there's all these like you know like, bottom of the barrel of all the other ethnicities, and they have to be the black whatever of that that thing. Um, but what what's consistent is that their cultural ways are not. Right, they're not organized, particularly around WASP culture, uh, right, like white Anglo-Saxon Protestant culture. You know, just watch Downton Abbey, you know what I mean. <laughs> 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 upstairs, not downstairs. <laughs> downstairs. And so I think that that's really important, right? Is to start to figure out. You know, this conversation is not a not a, a by all means going to be encompassing. Right? It's but the beginning to hopefully encourage people. <coughs> to start to figure out how to create space just for having a conversation, no matter what it is. The, the ignorant, with all of the ignorance, with some of the aggression, that it, it's all welcome, that it can actually all be in the room. We don't have to fix it. We don't have to like make it different. We could let their conversation play out and just let it be. It's not a resolution, but it's not intended to be. Right. And then we can go from there. I want to say in the love part, um, I think listening to pain from love is more important than listening for facts from intellect. Mm -hmm. and, um, and I think it's very easy to get into this listening for facts from intellect and we start debating facts about whether this happened or that happened or whatever happened. And, um, and it's not that that conversation um, in terms of 
the sanity check that comes out of the wisdom that comes out of relationship and actually finding out where each of us were stuck in a particular dynamic is important. But um, it cannot happen. It cannot happen until we start from love first. It just can't happen. It will be full of defense. It will collapse every damn time if there's power involved. So, and, and the listening part, speaking as, you know, white male straight who's used to being listened to all the time. Um, <laughs> I can't listen enough. Whatever listening, whatever amount of listening I'm doing, it's probably always short of what I need to be doing. And I think if we're, if, if, if we're on the upside of any power relationship, that needs to be super clear. Whatever amount of hearing you think you're doing, it probably needs to be a little more than that. You know, so, so to really start um, training oneself to listen from your heart, especially everybody, of course, but especially if you're on the upside of a power relationship, especially because you're not used to, you're used to being hurt. That's just the way it is. You're just used to being hurt. You don't have a mirror. You don't have a clear mirror for not being, for, for, for the fact that you go on and on and on, or I go on and on and on. Except my wife is a very clear mirror. <laughs> but, um, and then that brings me back to actually something you said, Laura, which I think is really important. Um, you walk into a practice discussion room as a woman and as a man sitting there and it brings up all of that history on patriarchy and violence. And this requires a different kind of training or a more thorough training for teachers, but that exact conversation needs to happen. That needs to be able to be in the practice discussion room. We need to be able to talk about this is what's coming up right now around this relationship. Now that's a level of vulnerability that is not being, um, that probably most of us don't feel safe in Dharma centers around. But if we can't, we have to somehow get to that. You know, where that can actually, we can actually talk about the whole of the relationship that's going on and meet it. And, um, and then there can be wisdom that comes out of that relationship that wouldn't, would just not have been there before. Because this is, no matter how, how scary it is, it's going to come out between us. It's not going to come out on one side or the other. The prajna, the wisdom that is going to arise to heal, is going to come out between. Mm. And, um, and, and being able to have a conversation and a dialogue and a listening that allows for that to come is going to be critical. And, and some of us just need to shut up. <laughs> Can I just say something in, in response to that? To me, it, again, it feels like a, like a, a real physical practice, you mm. know, that, and, you know, that for all of us, I think, you know, we, we have to learn how to work with defensiveness, you know, a protective fight, flight, fright, we're defending ourselves, you know, just pops up, you know, and, um, I don't know anything other than than lots of meditation, you know, <laughs> uh, as as a way of helping, like you were saying, create that space. So, you know, it's not that defensiveness isn't going to come up, 
you know. Mm-hmm. As soon as there's conflict, it's, it's coming up for me. Mm-hmm. You know, as soon as I feel as if, you know, um, somebody is unhappy with me, it's going to come up. But, you know, um, to me at least, you know, meditation has offered me a space where, uh, you know, I'm not just going to act from that, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to hold it and, you know, and especially if I'm in a position of power, I'm, you know, it's more my responsibility to not act out from, from that um, and to quiet it down enough so I can listen. You know, if the defenses take over, your frontal lobe goes offline, <laughs> you can't listen, you know, so. Like a lot of times I hear that, I hear how you're in the practice and things like that from a lot of white people, um, how they want to work on defenses or whatever, and the opportunity was right here. You know, they get tons of opportunities to, to practice not being so defensive when they hear other people's experiences, when they hear what happened. Mm-hmm. You know, Casey Good was share her experience and my experience. And automatically. So I always hear like this whole practice stuff, and it doesn't, I mean, and then they say they don't get opportunities. And I'm like, the opportunity is right there. So um, it's, it, I'm exhausted. I'm, I'm, I'm very tired right now. And, you know, that's the same. It reminded me of what happened to Jarrell when he um, confronted that white woman who did that to him. Um, and she was supported by the teacher. Mm-hmm. So um, I think another thing is I don't like um, I don't I don't I t- well what I witnessed in that case was like she I mean my, the teacher had made sure to confront Jarrell you know by having a meeting with him mm-hmm. after he expressed himself um, <coughs> with anger, but. When Jarrell approached him about what she did, it was like no meeting, no nothing. It just doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. It doesn't really doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Yes, sir. Mm-hmm. your hand up as a while ago. Was that the one? Can you It is 
so much, I think, through this practice that I'm reminded it is in the work, the, the practice of life, the engaged practice that I understand with the help of studying and learning Dharma, how I am so caught up in these webs and systems that make the work on the cushion incredibly freaking difficult and not simplistic at all in terms of, you know, it, it's, it's really hard. <laughs> um, and I, I do think that, especially as a person of color, as a queer person of color, that I, I think about uh, the depth or the, the how, how much, how much, I believe, how hard I go when I'm on a cushion or how hard I go when I'm sitting down because I am having to both check, uh, check my judgment around feeling anger and check my anger and check my, like I'm having to do all of these, or <laughs> all of these cross checks around all of these multiple ways I have both silenced myself, been silenced. Um, so I, I, I want to, uh, I guess I want to share, similarly to the, the microaggression I was going to share, which was at a retreat at a beautiful center I very much care about, led for a POC community, um, led by mostly POC community. Um, the first talk, the intro talk, literally had me getting up out of my seat to go and talk to someone about the rest of the retreat to make sure that the people who I felt that I invited to this space would be really safe. Because the talk was very much a deflection of what the experiences were of the people who were there. And it was asking them to forgive, 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 forgive. And it was from a context from a sister, I totally respect, she is my boo, you know? But I recognized in that moment, as we say POC, that there's so much individual and very complex nuances to the experience of someone who is African-Caribbean, African-American Caribbean, African, like there are, we, are, we are all so different <laughs> and have played and related to both capitalism and colonialism in so many different ways that to compartmentalize our experiences and then also then to truncate how we can all be liberated from them by just meditating can be very difficult if we don't acknowledge that our personal journey is what will actually totally catapult, like acknowledging as Beatrice, not Beatrice as Casey, not Beatrice as, like acknowledging that my true experiences are, are what I'm in my practice with when I'm on the cushion and how those are very much related to this macro experience simultaneously, this larger body. It, I, I just, I, I'm hoping I'm making sense, but I, I had to, I, in that moment, in that microaggression, I had to remember that this woman who was a head nun was still in her practice and her meditation and her work is still going. And the space, that I needed to give her as a new practitioner was still huge because in that moment I wanted to, in, with everything in me, take all the people I had brought there and get up out there. I wanted to be out. So I, I think it's just, and I do, do absolutely do not want to at all. I hope that my actions or what I'm communicating is not to diminish very much the feeling of like, yo, y'all, we have these opportunities, take them. Mm -hmm. And I can say that I 
in that moment, that beautiful moment between John and Casey, and I appreciate so much your courage, both of you. But in that moment, I have to say, actually, the time and space that you even yourself, both you, both of them, that I think both of you allow to even consider another choice or a way to communicate or a way to hold this moment in more compassion or a way to be with each other, that is practice. Mm -hmm. And that, that, that has to be acknowledged that you are actually doing work and there's more work to be done. Mm -hmm. But that is practice. John, the fact that you stop to think about it, that's practice. And that means that you do think something differently, that you do have, there's more to question, right? So I, I just want to honor that I don't think it has, it, it, it sounds simple when we say it. I think that it's just meditation, and I know, Laura, I know that's not how you meant to, I know that's not how, how it is. I do not perceive it that way. But I also respect that if we, if, we, if we only hear that it's just meditation that we hear, but we don't hear how complex and nuanced this work is, um, as similar to like the work of, of really creating change and transformation and revolution. Then I think I think it will always be considered as something very surface that we all can get lost in um, and feel very empty. And God, that was long winded, huh? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> Sorry. Can you? Do you have time for me? Um, yeah. I don't just answer your answers your question, but I I can't speak for. Millions of people, obviously. I can only speak for myself. Um, and I'm very good at this practice, as I, as I keep pointing out, really just a, a matter of a few months. Um, when I came because of a, an experience I had that lasted several years, which uh, kind of left me uh, completely sort of, um, yeah, a, a shell of myself. And race was definitely at the center of that, that experience. Uh, it's actually official, officially been proven that that was, that's the case. Um, so I went to a, a retreat uh, for people of color, and which is what I needed, um, just trying to kind of uh, regain my equilibrium. And uh, I think what I needed was, right, so I remember I needed space. <laughs> um, I remember sort of sitting uh, quietly on in, uh, in meditation, and someone came up, and I don't, I, I don't, I don't think that, that she had any bad intentions, but started um, sort of unburdening uh, herself of uh, you know, complaints she had about. Um, she was, so, she worked at this particular place, and she had issues, I guess, with some of the nonsense and so forth. And I, I listened, and I was, you know, I hope I was kind, but. Um, at that time, I was really kind of like somebody in need of first aid. Um, I was uh, in need of intensive care, which is why I was there. And um, and again, I mean, I don't see this as a bad way, but I just I just felt maybe um, you know the best thing for both of us is I don't know that that kind of been the best. I I really didn't need to to have to. To worry about that, I wasn't in a state to sort of offer any kind of real, um, yeah. Anyway, um, I came. I came back. I joined the sangha. I was. I went for um, a few months, uh, several months, a few months, 
Um, and I was probably one of, maybe, maybe, I felt like I was the only person of color there at that time. Uh, and I was fairly quiet, but that day I was sort of, I was talking with people that was being friendly because I was getting better. As I got better, I got becoming more, more like myself. Um, so again, I was sitting there because that's, that's why I'm there. I'm there because I'm trying to, uh, yeah, get better. Um, I really have to kind of start from there, and that's why, you know. Uh, and this person just came and sat beside me and started, you know, letting me know the person I was talking to was married to somebody else. And, um, and for five minutes I had to listen to who was, you know, already espoused. And, and I, maybe she was just trying to be friendly. Um, and uh, there are probably no bad intentions, but again, I was there because I needed space and um, because I, yeah, I really needed to kind of, uh, whatever, repair that damage which, which, was, which really left me sort of dismantled. Um, and it wasn't particularly helpful in either of those situations to have someone, as I'm sitting there, trying to uh, heal my mind, body, and spirit, sort of give me things to think about that I that are not, was not particularly helpful to me at that particular moment, or to them maybe, uh, that, has, that doesn't serve either, either our liberations. And I just, you know, like, um, I don't know. Uh, yeah, I, I was sitting uh, in peace, but if you really wanted to be, I don't know, maybe just do this, and that would have been, like, that would have like, said everything, I would have, you know. But, so that happened, and I, that was my last time at that sangha. Mm -hmm. And again, it's not because I don't like these people, or I think that, oh, you know, but it's just like, again, I'm really trying to repair myself for a very traumatic experience. Mm -hmm. And uh, if I can go somewhere else where I don't have to, like, worry about, okay, do you know what I mean? About mm -hmm. having to explain too much or having to listen to too much uh, or then, you know, I'm going to go to a place where it's kind of easier for me to, to do that work. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, I'm having a lot of dreams right now. So mm -hmm. I have to come out and have uh, kind of a half-baked um, idea. I think that the way there are spaces for folks of color, I'm really honored that like folks of color is a catch-all that does not even begin to express the beautiful diversity of like various identities. Um, intentional white spaces, and I know most spaces are all white spaces, but having space to intentionally talk about the pain and suffering of racial superiority that white folks experience, that we act out on black folks, which people of color do not need to hear about, is not, that's not the problem, but like, for people of color to hear, but in order for us to stop taking out our internalized oppression of needing to be right all the time, needing to be the best all the time. I walk into a space and there's all these expectations and entitlement. And then there's suffering when I, that expectation doesn't get met. And it's an imperative expectation that maybe has some relation to my essence and being, but also something that has been put in me and I've been socialized. And like unpacking the way, um, the, the various ways white identity separates us from our humanity 
so we could heal and then be actual allies and not allies. You know, I was met with a friend today, um, and just even within, you know, anti-racism groups and like white folks trying to dismantle white supremacy, the amount of crap that we still act out, like being white supremacists as we're trying to dismantle white supremacy. <laughs> we are so like not in touch with it. and we don't have like people are not called like often we don't get called on our stuff because we are right and mm -hmm. and then when somebody does we tell them no 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 that's your perspective and so having space it happens all the time I'm so, so tired so I'm just white people but I'm like I'm so sorry no but people of color do it too yes and yes they speak for you <laughs> all the time and like and then you're like folks of color get internalized like then there's and what you were like you know, we we sent the message, and they're like, you know, there's all this. Anyways, or, you know, we poisoned so many minds. We white supremacy has poisoned so many minds. Everybody's poisoned. Folks of color, white folks, everybody in between. Racism even exists. We can go there, like, and so, like, let's as white folks, and if you want to come talk to me, because that there are actually groups that I'm a part of, like, let's start dealing with our own poison and putting soothing that. So we could show up with consciousness and practice in a way where we have more clarity mm -hmm. and can actually work for the liberation of all beings. And then there's also the Latino. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, it's time. You want a closing? That was a little switch of roles. Did I have the call? Well, that I paid attention to the time. Yeah. We're supposed to care about that. And we're supposed to. Yeah. <laughs> Especially the Germans. Um, <laughs> it's a German. <laughs> Did you want to mention me about the, the group starting on Saturday? Oh, yeah. There's a group that's um, starting here that is... Um, that is specifically about, what do we call it? Undoing whiteness and oppression. It's gonna be a white group that does exactly this, which you're welcome to advise or come. Um, but um, it's important to do, and it's important to do in an ongoing way rather than just every once in a while. So, and, and so I would, yeah, I would invite anybody who wants to come to that to please come to it. What time? It's going to happen the first Saturday of each month here at, what is it, 1.30? 1.30 1.30 to 3.30, two hours <coughs> once a month. Starting when? Starting this coming March. The first Saturday of March, yeah. Yeah. I want to, just, just one quick thing, and that is, um, in terms of this continuing to go on and people, um, and this is something I'm, I'm riffing off of you right now. Um, this continuing to go on. As Buddhists, I think it's really interesting for us to just look at, uh, we're very clear that if we have a physical response of resistance, we're supposed to look this way. And yet, too often, I see in Dharma communities, 
that if there is resistance in white people around racism or resistance in men around talking about patriarchy, there's something wrong with the people bringing it to them. That's a bullshit move, okay? That is just not allowable, okay? That it is always this way. So if, we, if something comes up and, that, and we want to shove it away, or we want to devalue it, or we don't want to hear, we go this way, just like with everything else. So that really needs to be extraordinarily clear in terms of practice. And in terms of this stuff happening, if we do that, then we can have these conversations in this kind of a space and people can screw up and they can say dumb things and they can have exchanges that don't work and we can look the way we're supposed to look and we can speak the truth of what's happening in the room and nobody, hopefully nobody will feel, I sure hope nobody feels the need to go correct people afterwards like what happened to you, you know, or anyone else where White power, white, the white power structure basically goes and corrects the voice of everybody who's not white. If we just don't do that, it will work. It's, this will happen. And we can hear what we need to hear. You know, I trust the community to be able to do that as long as nobody's lording over the community and making decisions what's correct voice and what's not correct <laughs> voice. That's what screws everything up. So, and I, it, that's a way oversimplification, but at least we can start there. Angel, and then we need to stop. I think um, I want to go back to for the, the to the question about hierarchy. And mm. there was a moment when you were talking about like, oh, this needs to happen, and I was like, oh, but who needs to do it? <laughs> <laughs> People that need to do it are the ones that aren't doing it. Yeah. And that, I just want to like lift that up, but that's part of the incredible challenge of the power dynamic is that exactly um, who most needs to, to listen, right? Who's most um, in a position of not, not just being um, blind to uh, the waters in which they swim are exactly who's not doing that work. It's like those, and, and that's, that's especially challenging in Buddhist communities because it's the people that are holding power and that are sitting in positions of power um, that aren't interested, you know, they appear not interested. And so I was a little like, oh, when you said that, yeah. because of, you know, of course I know you weren't saying, oh, you need to go and do it, mm -hmm. but I was like, but how does that happen? Yeah, it's true. And so I just think that I want to just name that that's hugely problematic because, um, as I said, you know, for the, for the, for the most part in, in um, you know, American Buddhism, uh, for all kinds of reasons, you know, white folks have like 20, 30 years jump on uh, when folks of color, uh, you know, not exotic folks of color from other countries where the, where the Dharma came from. <laughs> But from, you know, from, from convert folks of color, they, there's a jump in terms of power, right? And, and uh, Tia and I talked a little bit about this, about like, well, what do you do when exact people are now ready to see folks of, folks of color in some place of power as a signal of like safety? And yet the dynamics of hierarchy within Buddhist teaching, that's appropriate to the teaching 
actually appropriate to the teaching, also lends itself, though it gets conflated, so that people that are maybe quite experienced and have a great deal to offer around the teaching are just, you know, infantile when it comes to their um, ability to, to manage and negotiate race in conversations about race and about mm -hmm. uh, sexism, about patriarchy. And I, I just, it's a question that we just have to hold um, and start to become really creative about how do we uh, retrofit Buddhism and how it happens in America to, to address that. Um, there are different forms of it, but I think that, you know, America poses, the West poses a unique challenge that um, the more uh, homogenous cultures didn't have to exist, you know, didn't, didn't have to work with, right? Certainly the patriarch is out of control <laughs> in lots of places. But now we have all sorts of new things to deal with. And so I just encourage us all to be, to start thinking um, about it. And, you know, it's not going to just be a big power grab because that's not appropriate, right? Like practitioners that are not uh, developed in their, in their practice and in the Dharma, it doesn't make sense to be like falsely putting them in positions of uh, teaching power, right? That's, that's not appropriate. And on the other hand, um, you do have people that are running rampant, you know, that, that have a great deal of seniority in terms of teaching, but they're, they're ill-equipped, uh, really, to be navigating this space. Mm -hmm. So we, we, we need to be thinking about that. And I just wanted to name it as something to acknowledge that it is true. Um, it's a conundrum. And somehow or another, we do have to, we, we do have to figure it out. Yeah. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. I hope this continues. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the Brooklyn Zen Center. Our programs are given free of charge and made possible by the donations we receive. For more information on supporting Brooklyn Zen Center, please visit the giving section of brooklynzen.org.